Welcome to another episode of Chan with the Plan, the podcast, a podcast providing career advice and easy, actionable steps for frustrated professionals, helping you overcome career challenges so you can stop feeling confused and defeated and start feeling focused and confident in order to excel in your career. And I'm your host, Max Chan. One of the most in-demand roles right now, especially at tech companies, is software engineer. If you have developed your skills as a software engineer, you automatically make six figures right out the gate. The issue is that a lot of professionals that want to get into software engineering that only have a non-technical background believe it's difficult to pivot into a technical role such as software engineering. They think they have to go back to school to get their bachelor's in computer science. They think they have to build up their skills over a few years on the side in order to land that six-figure software engineering job. But it doesn't have to be that way. That's what this podcast is for to help professionals overcome common career challenges to get them to the next level. So if you want to go from A to B, from being non-technical, knowing nothing about code, to being a software developer, engineer, making six figures as fast as possible, then you've come to the right place and listening to the right episode. As I have invited a guest that trains non-technical professionals and turn them into master programmers and coders, landing six-figure dream jobs as a software developer at the most popular tech companies. Her name is Dr. Emily Hill, and she is a software engineering trainer, educator, and mother of four kids. After struggling to learn how to code while earning three computer science degrees, Emily has been on a mission to make it easier to master the art of programming and become a six-figure software developer. She has taught problem-solving and coding skills to college students for over 10 years as a tenured professor, now that major tech companies no longer require college degrees, she's offering these prize skills faster and more effectively outside of academia. Her top students have landed six-figure developer jobs at Amazon, Chase, and tech startups. She is the founder of the Joy of Coding Academy, and this is our discussion on how to become a six-figure software developer from scratch. Hey, Emily, how's it going? Hi, good. How are you? Thanks for having me, Max. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on the show, especially with a lot of professionals looking to make a career pivot during this time. I think the great resignation is over, so to speak, but there are still a lot of professionals that are trying to make a career change because they feel stagnant. And we connected on this Facebook group in terms of collaborating with other podcasters. And you had a great story that I think would be very relevant to my listeners who are looking for a career change to do something new as well as make more money than what they're doing. And I thought bringing you on, Emily, would really help them explore the options that they didn't think were possible. So with that being said, why don't you go ahead and just talk a little bit about your background and how you developed this joy of coding school that you created? Yeah, thank you so much. So yeah, I'm the founder of the Joy of Coding Academy, where we train six-figure software developers in six months. But it, that sounds really rosy. But that wasn't necessarily my journey <laughs> when I started. You know, it took me a long time to learn how to code. And I tried everything society recommends. Like I, in high school, I took a class, no clue what I was doing. I looked at the guy in front of me. I tried to understand what he was doing. I totally didn't get it over my head. And so then I was like, well, okay, let me go to college, right? I'll get my bachelor's of science in computer science. Then I'll learn how to code. You know, unfortunately, computer science and programming are related fields, but they are not the same. So like professors teach computer science, which can be very theoretical. And then the students all want to learn programming. 
So at the time, I was like, oh my goodness, I can't apply for jobs. And I, it wasn't like I wasn't successful in college. I had a 4.0 my final two years. So it, it wasn't like, it was just, it didn't work because computer science does not necessarily equal programming. And so I was like, well, what am I going to do? I, I can't apply for jobs. I, I just felt like someone was going to figure out I was a fraud. Meanwhile, I didn't realize that for years, industry had known that there was this gap that computer science did not necessarily prepare students for industry software development jobs. But I didn't know that at the time. So I was like, okay, more school must be the answer, right? Like it was just that one school didn't work. Let me, let me try some more. So I got my master's and my PhD. And the only thing that happened when I got my master's in computer science was that the faculty gave me harder projects with no support. So it was just like this pressure cooker. It was either do or die. It was either learn to code or fail out of grad school. And I was way more afraid of failing out of grad school. And so I finally figured it out. But basically, even though I have all these degrees in computer science, I'm a self-taught programmer. Like there is a disconnect there to me. Like I didn't, I didn't think that was how things should go. And so that was kind of the trajectory I was on. And once I figured it out, once it clicked for me, I just realized it didn't have to be that hard. It didn't have to take six years and three degrees to figure this out. So when I got my PhD, I wanted to try and change the system from within and help others learn how to code faster than what, what was typically happening in academia up to that point. And so I've been a professor at a couple different universities, a tenured professor for over 10 years. And that's where I really honed my ability to teach anybody these basics. Can you tell me more about like, why is there a disconnect between programming and computer science? Yes, this is such a great question. A lot of people ask this. So once I became a faculty member and a professor, and I was actually, I was in charge of a computer science program at a small liberal arts institution where, so I was the program director and I designed the curriculum and I created the sequence. And what most people don't realize is that computer science is about pushing the boundaries of what we, of the problems we can solve with computers. In fact, Computer science as a discipline, as a field, was invented before programming and computers existed, like 50 to 100 years before. So computer science is answering the question, how can we solve a problem with digital information? It doesn't necessarily mean we have to sit down and implement it. Do you see the gap? So there's a gap. So that's the responsibility of computer science faculty. It's what they're assessed on and like there's certifications and like there's national standards. They're all about problem solving, but there's no practical component that is required. So I, when I experienced computer science, I found I learned best when I coded it. So in grad school, if I got the theory, I could code it. And if there was a gap there, I wasn't able to code it. Now, not everybody teaches it that way, but I realized that. And so I made sure to embed that in all of my materials. But programming is really about, okay, how do we sit down? Now, we have this idea. We have this approach to solving a problem. How do we create it and build it so that other people can use it, so that it can actually exist in the world? So they're slightly different focuses. So what computer programming languages have you learned and how did you learn them on your own? Oh, that's a great question. So I've, I've learned a lot of different programming languages in part because once you know like the fundamentals, I call them the seven basics. Like There's just seven basic things. And they're just ways that you can solve problems with programming, but it doesn't matter what language. So once you've got those seven basics kind of rock solid in your fundamentals, it's like the alphabet. Like you're not going to learn to read and write without knowing the alphabet. So you have this alphabet of seven basics. And really the differences between the different programming languages are very superficial. So it becomes a matter of, okay, let's use the right tool for the job. Which programming language is going to make 
my programming life easier and it's going to be easier to implement and solve this problem. So, I mean, I've worked with, I think my, the first language I loved was Perl. Nobody learns this language, but you know, I've done PHP and C and C++ and Bash and SQL and JavaScript and Java. There's probably some I'm forgetting, but like you get the picture. Like once you just kind of, you just start picking them up and it's no big deal anymore. Python is the one I teach. So yeah, I did leave one out. That one, that one's a biggie, but they, they all have value. It's kind of like, imagine you had a toolbox, right? And you learn how to use one screwdriver. Okay. Programming languages are a little bit more complicated than a screwdriver, but this is an analogy. Imagine you have this screwdriver and you learn how to use it to like build a house. Like you learn where do you use the screwdriver in the process of creating something. You can learn other screwdrivers, right? There are some are bigger, some are shorter, some have different tops, some are different colors. But once you know how to use that basic screwdriver, you can use them all, right? Like, so that's kind of the idea with programming languages. Like, it's a little bit more complicated to master those seven basics than learning to turn a screwdriver. But it's the same concept that once you master one and then you start looking at it, you know, maybe looking at a second one, they all are just going to kind of come. It's not going to be a barrier anymore. It's going to be easy. In terms of the computer programming that you were just walking us through, like how did you learn how to do it? Did you get look at like free resources? Did you do a lot of research to find out the right things to learn? Oh, so th- this is a great question because there's so much out there now. There's so many videos, so many books, and it's kind of like learning to swim, right? You could read a book on it. How well do you think you'll swim if you just dive right in, right? Or sometimes it helps to learn from someone or with someone. So I really, I cobbled it together as best I could from what I was given. So partly the assignments that my instructors gave me did help. Like I was given concrete tasks to try to do. And of course I couldn't do them. And in fact, sometimes they couldn't even help me. Like no joke, once I brought an assignment that a professor had assigned to his office and I said, I'm having problems. And he said, I can't help you. I got like a pity bee in that class. So I mean, like, so the, 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 they gave me activities. So that was good, but they couldn't always help me figure out how to solve the activities. In fact, one professor talked so far over my head, I just stopped going to his office hours and I would email him, even though it was less effective a means of communication. At least I could reread it so many times, maybe I'd glean something that I was missing from it. So it was so I wasn't getting a lot of support from the people who were giving me the assignments and the projects, but they did kind of force me to think through certain things. So one of the things I tumbled to kind of early on was what does clean code look like? What, what's the ideal way to solve this problem? So I was always driven by what's the best way to do it? And so that kind of led me on a path of self-learning. Like it was very, very specifically. So I did, so that was kind of my lens because I, I just wanted it to be simple and easy. And, and clean code is simple and easy to read and write. So I was trying to like teach myself that. And I also, some of, some of what I learned was also from my peers. Programmers aren't always awesome at explaining things. I don't know if anyone else may have encountered this in the tech field. It happens, right? We're not known for our communication skills. And so one of my best friends was this amazing genius of a programmer. You know, and I'd work with him all the time. But to be honest, I had to stop working with him because I wasn't learning anything because he wasn't, although he was brilliant at doing it, he wasn't brilliant at explaining it. And so, but I did find some other grad students in grad school that were able to help me. For example, there was a couple guys that were sysadmins for our research lab. And so I would ask them low level systems type questions. Like, well, how would you guys do this? And I just, I would just hang out with them and be like, how would you do this? How would you do this? Like any problem I had is like, I bet there's a better way. And I bet they know what it is. And I'd ask them. So that was partly where some of my knowledge came from. And then I also had a friend who I was collaborating with and we were trying to figure something out. And I, I just kept trying. We were running these experiments. And they took all weekend long. And so I, every Friday, 
I'd, I'd run the experiment. I'd come back on Monday and try and figure, and, and it wasn't coming out right. And I'd look at it Monday morning, trying to figure out what was wrong. I had no clue. I had no clue. And so next Friday, I'd try something else. I was just spitballing. And Monday morning, oh, I still didn't know what was going on. So one day she sat down with me just, just for a couple hours and showed me step-by-step, step, how do you just troubleshoot and problem solve? Like, what do you do? What does it look like? Like, when do you Google? What, what error logs do you look at in the computer? Just like all those different pieces. And that was so transformative for me. Like, and because I'm driven by really like generalizing and applying things in as many ways as possible, that became like the starter for me. That was all I needed. Just someone sitting down with me for a couple minutes, boom. And I was, and it just transformed my ability to debug and troubleshoot anything. And so that's really the skills that I help teach my students is how do you solve any problem that comes in front of you? And once you have that process and that confidence in yourself to execute that process, it's a game changer. That's what that light bulb moment really is. Yeah. So to add to that, people who want to get a computer programmer or another technical field, they feel overwhelmed. Like, okay, all this coding language, I don't understand it. But you're saying like, if you understand the fundamentals, you should be able to tackle any problem. Exactly. And and that's a really great point because I did feel discouraged. Like I was around these geniuses. They were like prodigies. I'm like, how can I possibly contribute when, when these amazing geniuses exist? But that's the thing is that you will always have amazing geniuses. Like for example, for anyone that listens to music, take Mozart. He was a child prodigy. He was writing symphonies at like five or three. I can't remember how young he was when he wrote his first piece of music. I mean, come on. Like that's incredible. But just because he existed doesn't mean we don't enjoy lots of other people's music who learned later in life and maybe it took them longer to learn and they weren't just born with it. That's totally cool. And they're creating things that we love. And that's the thing is we need everybody involved in designing and developing software. Like that's why I'm, you know, I do what I do because right now the only software we have is being created by the people that just got it. But there's so much value when you bring in other areas of expertise. Everyone has a superpower. Like we're all looking to find and and share our superpowers. And so, you know, maybe your superpower is not like knowing how to code without learning from anyone, right? Like maybe maybe your superpower is in art or dance or history or or you know, wherever it is, whatever that might be. And so these skills will help you take it, take it to the next level. So tell us about how you landed your first job as a programmer. So I actually have done a lot of my work inside academia and education. So I have, I've interned at a startup company in San Francisco. That was probably my first job as a programmer. And it taught me that I didn't love the industry environment. It wasn't a good fit for me. It wasn't a good fit for me. And because I was really passionate about teaching it and figuring out how to teach it to anyone, I ended up staying and sticking around mostly in, in education. I mean, I was a programmer in graduate school. I program all the time for myself if I need to. But to be honest, mostly what I do is support others in becoming those six-figure developers. All right. So you've had all that learning curve and you said there has to be an easier way. So how did you develop the Joy of Coding Academy? Oh, thank you. This is a great question. Because I have to be honest, as long as it took me to learn to code, that was six years, it took me just as long to learn how to teach it well. And in fact, I had to switch universities because <laughs> I, um, I taught at a really big university where they had 300 students. And I would see the students once, maybe twice their whole four years there. And so I couldn't see the impact of the changes I was having on the student outcomes. I couldn't see what results they were having. So I went to a smaller university I had a leadership position where I could, you know, really take ownership for the curriculum. 
And just year after year, semester after semester, week after week, I was in there figuring out how do I teach you guys what's most important? And I just did it over and over and over again. And what I would see is like, if I found an issue when they were graduating, I was like, oh, you guys don't know how to do this yet. I didn't just fix it there. I put it back in the intro course because you don't have to wait to learn the best practices to become that six-figure developer, right? It's kind of like saying, you know, do you want to do you want to learn twice? Do you want to learn a bad habit and then learn how to fix it? Or do you just want to learn the good habit right from the beginning? Because what you do in the small, when you scale it, you're going to do it in the large. So I just embedded all of those best practices right away in the intro. It doesn't take any more time. It's just you're learning it all together, like kind of sandwiched. And so I evolved that over and over and over again. I taught hundreds of students semester after semester. And because I saw them every semester, I was able to exactly see, okay, what works, what doesn't. And I was in a liberal arts environment, which is, you know, catering to many majors. It wasn't like an engineering school. So I was seeing artists and history majors and English majors and physicists and mathematicians. You know, and I, would, I, would, I would just love surprising them that, oh, I can do computer science. I can do this. This is cool. And so I just love that part of it. And so that's really where I like honed my process and my approach that, that has become the Joy of Coding Academy. And I think the difference is in a university setting, it took two and a half years to get through it. And be, when you throw out the administrative overhead and like spring breaks and like exams and everything, you can consolidate it. And, and it's just one perspective. It's just my perspective. There's no other faculty members teaching different pieces. It, you can condense it to six months. Yeah, it, it's good you brought that up in terms of like, it's better to start fresh because then you don't have to fix anything because it's new, right? It's similar to like, for example, let's say you want to learn how to play golf, but you tried to play golf on your own for a year. Then you get a coach. Now you have to go through all the bad habits, which actually takes you longer compared to someone who's just starting fresh and having the right technique right away, right? Exactly. And the right frame of mind, because really being a six-figure developer is a mindset. And it's about knowing, recognizing that code is not just something that you execute that's functional but is a means of communicating with other developers. Like that's what helps people level up to that, that higher level is that you get that bigger picture and you don't, that doesn't cost any extra, right? It doesn't take more time. It's just having that framing right from the beginning. It changes how you go about it. And then having someone who can actually tell you and look at your code and be like, oh, guess what? You're building a bad habit here. This is a telltale sign of a new coder. Here, change this habit. Do it this way instead. And it doesn't take very much time to make the change, right? It's super simple techniques. But when you're on your own, sometimes you can't see that, right? Because you don't have that bigger. How many computer languages are there? There, there has to be multiple programming languages, right? Oh my goodness. I actually, I did a whole video about this in my, uh, in my Facebook group. There is like, if you go on Wikipedia, oh, I, it was hundreds. Oh, it was so many. Now that's not how many are actually used. Oh, I forgot one before, Ruby. Um, anyways, <laughs> they'll just keep popping up all day long. Oh, Ru start Ruby on Rails, right? Is that it? Ruby on Rails? Yeah, Ruby on Rails. Yeah, there's like Cobalt, Pascal, Fortran. There's... Okay, I, I could go on and on and on. And I literally, I did like a 15 minute talk about this. And partly it's because languages are means of expression. And so each language is designed around some idea that they're trying to make it easier to do something. So there's like this balancing act between how easy can we make it versus how flexible and how much expressiveness does the language have. And so you end up with all sorts of different languages out there. There is a lot, but usually people only need to learn a couple. And they're, and they're good. <laughs> okay, just to add to that, yeah, there's tons of languages. Uh, there are a couple right now that are popular. So I'm assuming you focus on yes. those ones. Exactly. There's always that fear of like, okay, I learned these two languages, but then there's this new language. Uh, so now I have to start fresh. And now do I feel, 
they might feel like their skills are going to start getting extinct because like there's always these new languages popping up, I'm assuming. So how do you future-proof them when it comes to like learning those foundational languages that you teach in your academy? But then if there's a new language, they, ha- they can pick it up because they already have the foundation of computer programming. Yes, exactly. This is such a great question because that's exactly why, you know, in the beginning of the talk, I mentioned how we focus on those seven fundamentals, those seven basics of programming. And that's why you want to focus on the fundamentals, those fundamental principles, because they don't change. They're essential. And actually, one of the things that I think makes me a little bit different in my philosophy of teaching coding and software development um, is that I'm focused on prepping my students for a 20-year career, not just their first job. Yeah, they're going to get their first job. But my goal is, what can I teach you to help you be effective and future-proof for 20 years, knowing that technology constantly changes? So one of the things we do is we focus on those fundamentals. We showcase them with one current language, whatever that you know makes sense to be. For me, I personally prefer Python because I think it's the easiest to get started. It's the closest to English. And then we do another language to kind of start seeing, oh, how, you know, how are they the same? How are they different? So you can really like internalize those fundamentals. And then you pick whatever language that you know, excites you that you want to create code in. Maybe it's web, maybe it's mobile, maybe it's data science. You know, it doesn't really matter because I focus on the fundamentals. I actually support custom career paths for all my students because, you know, the fundamentals don't change. You're just changing what your concrete project is, where you're showcasing potential employers what you know, but what you what they all learn is the same. Absolutely. And so you said that you took, quote unquote, six years to understand computer programming, right? And then through all the trial and error, you've developed a curriculum that only takes six months to learn from end to end, right? So what are some learning lessons? Like how were you able to condense it to such a short time frame? Yeah. So it was really, th- one of the things I noticed when I was teaching computer science, because I, I was really, I was really passionate about this. I was like, how can we create a degree program? Because that was my focus at the time that allows students to get that computer science degree, but also actually know how to code when they get out. So I was trying to align the responsibilities of a computer science faculty member with student expectations of expecting that a computer science degree includes programming skills. And what ended up happening is I actually ended up giving those students two degrees and it was overwhelming amount of work for both them and me. So one of the things I've done is I've abstracted away the most important essential pieces of computer science that every programmer and software developer needs. But I've thrown out some of the curriculum. Now I have it, like if anyone actually needs it to do what they need to do, I can just whip it out (laughs) and share it. But like I focused on, you know, data structures and algorithms is the essential piece of computer science. It's the only course that's in like every single computer science program on the planet. And it's where all the technical interview questions are from. And it's because it's essentially, that is what computer science is distilled into one class. So instead of teaching you, you know, 16 classes of computer science and, and a little bit of programming, we focus on the programming skills and the software development skills and whatever computer science we need as a vehicle to achieve that. And then we focus on the software development fundamentals, working in a team, learning to collaborate, learning like what do software systems at scale look like? You know, what is that? What is the best practice process for collaborating? How does that work? All that good stuff. Can you uh, quickly walk us through the seven fundamentals of computer programming that you mentioned? This is such a great question. So the seven basics are variables, math and logic, input-output, conditions or ifs, loops, like for loops and while loops, functions, and data structures like lists. And that's it. And once you have those seven mastered in your back pocket, and it's not just knowing what they look like, right? Like 
That's the difference between learning the alphabet to read versus using the alphabet to write. Like you have to actually know when do I use these seven fundamentals to solve problems and how do I do that? And so once you've got that in your back pocket, you're ready to start leveling up and, and learning more and growing bigger and bigger systems. What are the common obstacles? Because everybody learns differently, right? So what's some common obstacles of your students where they are slower than the other ones in the cohort? So every student hits challenges. And I actually, I can't predict exactly where that will be. So like some students, for example, are really, really good problem solvers in terms of the engineering side of things and just get things working. But sometimes they skimp on the fundamentals. So when they are faced with a, a problem later on, they didn't have to master the fundamental to get the code working. But then when they answer a question later on, they're, they're kind of forced to examine that. And then there's some students that are the opposite where they really, really get it in theory and then they sit down to try and type it. And like, I don't know, it's just, you know, the it, it's never working. Their computer is never working for them. It's, not, it's always like something. And so really what I've done, because I've, I've taught so many students again and again and again, and I've seen it all, you know, I have this sequence that I follow that's worked for hundreds of students, you know, semester after semester. And so I know guaranteed, if there is a gap, we're going to find it because I have this like sequence of questions where we read the code and then we write the code and we, we talk about it, we look at it and we analyze it, you know, you know, which solution is better? Is it with, you know, these solutions both work, which one's better? And so we critically analyze the code too. And so we kind of understand at a higher level, like what makes really, really good clean code. Great. And do you consider your program a bootcamp? Like, would that be the right word for it? It's really close to a boot camp. So Joy of Coding Academy is, it has a lot more mentoring than a boot camp would. And the way that we're a little bit different from a boot camp, because when you go into a boot camp, they're giving you a set curriculum, like you have to learn these languages. Now I do start students off for the fundamentals for the first two to three months. Yeah, I'm going to hand you the languages. But in terms of like what job you get, you know, I have students coming in, they want to be web developers. They want to be mobile developers. One woman came to me with a medical degree. She wanted to be, a, you know, a data scientist doing biomedical research. Like, so we create custom portfolio projects at the end. So the front half is the same for everybody because it's tried and true and it works to get you those fundamentals. And then where they differentiate and we have a custom curriculum for anyone who wants it is in those projects later on. And we, I try and strategize with my, with my clients. You know, we talk about it. Okay, where do you want to go? Like find some jobs that you think, man, that would be amazing. And then we reverse engineer. Okay, what should we study? What should we work on for our portfolio show pieces to really get ourselves set up to be first in line for that job? To add to that point, so I'm a career coach, right? So I have worked with professionals that took boot camps and they never, they didn't enjoy the experience because they didn't get, it was still hard to get a job after. So it's one of the things like they, they upsold the fact that, oh, you're, you're definitely going to get a job once you come through a boot camp, And then they struggle so much with getting that experience. Like people are not right. Or people are writing them off saying, it's great. You have this boot camp and you have some project, but there's no relevant work experience. So we got to go with someone else. So that, that is a major problem in the boot camp industry where they, they oversell the chances of you getting a job. And then you get a lot of frustrated people leaving and struggling with the job search process. So what makes your academy different compared to some of these more well-known boot camps? Yeah, for sure. So that's a great question. Just as a data point, you know, my first student in the door for the Joy of Coding Academy did do a boot camp. Two, two of them have done boot camps. Um, but my first one, he came in, he, so he just studied at a boot camp for three months, had no clue how to solve problems. That's usually what I hear. And it doesn't really matter if you've got a computer science degree or a boot camp certificate. Usually people come to me because they're like, okay, I got the fundamentals. I taught myself like what a for loop looks like and I have no clue where to use it or how to solve problems. And within three months of being inside Joy Coding Academy, he had a job offer already. 
So like, like I, I, but what I offer students, like the way I'm different from traditional boot camps is I actually promise to work with you. That's my personal guarantee. I work with you until you get the job, until you get the desired result, which is totally different from like colleges, university, you throw all this money and you get a piece of paper. There's no guarantee, right? Like I work with all my students until they get that job. And it's not a data entry job or some like hidden language. Like I've seen boot camps promise jobs and they're like not coding jobs. Like, like to me, that's a problem. So I work with all my students until they get that desired result, until they get that job. And because we're working together so closely and it's this mentoring relationship, it's not like you're one of a hundred people. You know, we have like a handful of students, you know, it doesn't. And so it's a really much more smaller experience. We're working together one-on-one, we're building that community. And we have that actual development experience built in. Like the way you get ready for the six-figure jobs is by being the six-figure developer. And we do that by working in a team, using industry best practices under a mentor, like an apprentice, like an apprentice model, where someone who's an expert is actually looking at your code and saying, no, 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 change this. This looks great, but change this. This is an industry best practice. You need to do it this way. And then they actually get that feedback and that validation from an actual client outside of the Joy of Coding Academy. That's like, yes, they're going to use what they create. And it's just, it's just so amazing. And what I hear from the feedback from students is when they go up for job interviews, that client-based team development experience is what gets them the job because they have experience. They don't, might not have had a job, but they actually have the six-figure developer experience already uh, before they leave on that job. Can you explain more about the mentorship that you provide your students? Yeah, absolutely. In the beginning, there's, there's the weekly mentorship where we have myself and right, currently right now I have one other coach who helps with some of the, um, some of the more advanced technical topics. So, cause my, my, what I love to do is get people on those fundamentals. Like the, I just teach that all day long. I just love that part and just helping them understand the bigger picture and how that fits in and, and getting that problem solving rock solid. So that's really my area of expertise. And I can help people debug absolutely anything. But if I don't have, if I'm not the latest technically in something like web languages, there's a new one coming out every day, right? Like, so if someone else already has that expertise, I want all my students on the fast path. I'm going to bring them into as a coach into SideJoy of Coding Academy to give you that feedback. So we have like Web Wednesdays where people will will get like their their latest technology questions answered. And so then we have right now we it's it's pretty small. So we just have one coach in there who's working. So either myself or my my partner coach, we are on the team. So we have a couple teams right now that are that are collaboratively developing. And so we look at their code every time they check it in. We're giving them feedback before it goes like live to the team or to the client. Somebody has looked at it and given them feedback on the quality of their code. Is it professional? Is it up to the standards that six-figure developers are going to be looking for? And if it's not, we explain why, right? Like it's a learning vehicle. And so it's not just, no, this isn't good enough. It's like, well, but here is why. Here's the principle. So we're always learning. We're always improving ourselves. And we're always investing in leveling up to that highest, highest place to create awesome, awesome code. All right. And let's pivot to the, the job opportunities. You said one of your students got a job three months in a six-month program. So let's say you got other students that are near the end. How do you help them with the job search? Yeah. So we do whatever is, is needed. And so right now, a lot of technical jobs do the technical job interview, which is not a fun process. <laughs> it's not, and it's not ideal. So what I usually try to do is to coach students on finding what's called a warm interview path rather than a cold interview path. Like the cold brute force interview path can be a slog. It's, it's a lot. It's there for those who need it. But what we try to do is find a connection, whether it's my connection or a student's connection or somebody else that we know, 
and you know we get on LinkedIn, we we find things, and so we try and kind of hunt for a connection there. Um, you know, I talk to recruiters all the time to try and work. So hopefully, we're applying for a job where we're already at a slight advantage, right, over the pack. And then we work on practicing the technical interview skills, acing those problems. We do mock interviews, practice interviews. We look at the resume, like whatever it takes, whatever it needs. Um, you know, we do. So far, this, you know, the student that, that I spoke of that got got a job three months in. He just made his own resume and applied. Like, like we didn't go through anything and he just got it. <laughs> right? Like we didn't need to do anything special because his skills were so strong. But all that support is in there because that's not necessarily going to work for everybody. So we offer full support for all that, for all those pieces. What's the difference between a six-figure programmer and a five-figure, if there is such thing? Yes. Yes. And that's a great question. So I think to kind of give some context for this question, you, I think the lowest I've seen a programming job is 40K. So like entry level, not six figure software developers are 40 to 60K a year salary. And then as you have more expertise, you can go up. But my top students have gotten six figure or right under six figures at major companies. So like entry level is actually 40K to like 150K. Like that's what the starting salaries can be. So this is such a good question. What differentiates them? So a 40 to 60K developer is not going to have any experience working on a team. And they're not going to know that much. Like they might know HTML, CSS, and some JavaScript, like the web stack. Um, but they may not have experience with a major framework. They probably don't know have a lot of backend skills. They may not um, be very good problem solvers. They're just, they're getting their foot in the door and they're getting tried out. You know, it's basically like they're, you're, you're going to learn a little bit and get some training from whatever company hires you. And then we'll see if you're a good fit. When people are at that six-figure level, they have experience working with industry best practices on a team using whatever the latest framework might be. It doesn't have to be the absolute latest. It just has to be like one of the modern frameworks. And then, you know, recognizing and having the skills to, to kind of discern between code that's clean that other people want to look at that's following best practices and code that's not, and being able to create code that looks like that themselves. And so really, six-figure developers have a different mindset around coding than those entry levels. So really, the skill sets are similar, but it's really the ex experiences they've had and where they're trying to grow. A six-figure developer is on track to, in two years, make two to 300K, maybe in a five years, 500K. The most I've seen is 900K. So the ceiling is huge. I mean, beyond that, you're part of a startup, right? When you're hitting a million dollars, I would think you're not like a salaried programmer anymore. But like the sky is the limit. So a six-figure developer is really on that path to invest in themselves. They know how to learn. They have a rock-solid problem-solving process. And they know how to function in the modern technical space. That's great. So from what you're saying before, just to summarize your academy, it's six months. You got the seven fundamentals. You have mentorship. You create a portfolio of projects. You get like some work experience ahead of time. And then like you said, like warm applying. And then that's when you would help them get that six-figure job. Is, 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 am I missing anything in terms of the process you explained? Yes, for sure. And with the seven basics, we do a little bit more problem solving in, in the middle there to just, you know, transition from the seven basics and those fundamentals to that client-based project. But yeah, the first two, three months is that training piece where you're practicing the fundamentals and, and we level those up. And then the last three to six months is where you're working on that client-based project where you're actually using your skills. Is that full time? Is, is, is the bootcamp full time or is it part time? Oh, excellent question. So I'm all about working smarter, not harder. And I don't think working 40 to, 40 to 60 hour weeks to learn this is necessarily better because our minds have a limit 
usually for most people, they have a limit of how much they can learn, you know, how quickly. So really, you know, 60 hour boot camp where it's full immersion, you don't necessarily learn any more. You just get exposed to more, but you don't actually know how to use it any better because, right, we have like, anyways. So we're learning smarter, not harder. And so everything is designed to fit into a busy life that takes two hours a day or about 10 hours a week. So if you think you have that, yeah, you, you can do it. And in fact, the way I got these numbers is I actually sat down and I put the training materials in to two hours a day, two hour chunks based on how long it's taken, you know, all of my students over the years to do these types of activities. And so I marked it out two hours a day, five days a week um, to get you through the training in two to three months. And then in the projects, you, know, you get out what you put in. If you have more time, you can get get more out of it. But if you still can do that two hours a day, you'll 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 make amazing progress. So let's say someone graduates from your academy. What is some advice that you can provide them to continue to build up their skills? Yes. So the the fundamental principles that we're learning inside the Joy of Coding Academy are going to take you there if you continue to apply them. So for example, there's this one technique I talk about. It's called dryness. It means don't repeat yourself. And basically. Every software development best practice out there can be traced back to this one overriding principle. So basically what we're doing is we're teaching you a process of ongoing learning forever, right? Like, because as programmers, we're always learning. That's one of the cool things is we get paid to learn. And so if you just take this one principle and every time you finish a piece of code, you just take two minutes and you look at it. Okay, can it be drier? Can I make it better? And you do it next time. You won't have to sit down and think that. You'll just do it right away from the, from the beginning. And this is why programmers who continue to invest in themselves little by little and learn better and better ways of doing things, they are, you know, 10 times more effective than the entry level. That's why the range of programming salaries is like 40K to 900K, because you can literally like leverage your time so much more effectively when you learn these best practices. So we focus on those fundamental principles that are going to carry you through forever. And that's one of the reasons why we do six months. It doesn't need four years or 10 years because we're just laying that foundation for you to be self-sufficient as a learner moving forward. And your academy is it's online, right? Is it like, like a Zoom conference? Yeah, it's virtual. Yeah, we have, we have Q&As during the week. You know, there's the learning materials that we work through. Those are self-paced on your own time. And then we have weekly Q&A sessions. We have like a, a group chat on something called Discord. So you can ask questions all the time. Uh, my students can make 15 minute appointments with me, you know, whenever they need it to kind of get through their technical challenges, or at least for now, <laughs> if we grow too big and, and I can't handle that, you know, obviously we would change and find a new workaround, a new solution. But yeah, we have weekly Q&As where we get together and we chat. And so it, you don't always have to have a question. You can just kind of come and listen and hear what other people are doing. And sometimes you'll gain insights on things you thought you understood, but, oh, you know, here's a new spin on it. Oh, I can understand that deeper. So we get it to take advantage of that peer learning as well in the, in the open Q&A sessions, but it's all virtual. It's about building community, right? Because th yes. th that's a problem with people who try to self-teach themselves because like, there's, there's no accountability, there's no collaboration. And you said that exactly. one of the important things of a computer program is to be able to collaborate with other people with the specific code, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And that accountability piece and being a part of a community. And we really, we're really a supportive community inside the Joy of Coding Academy. Like one of my students, you know, he wanted to help. He noticed that someone he came in with in his cohort was was falling a little behind just because, you know, he works full time and didn't have as much time to, to, to set aside for it. And so he just set up a, a nightly hangout for anyone who wanted to come and, and they just get together and have like a study group. Like, and they just did it. Like, I didn't ask. Like, they just did it because that, that's the kind of community that we're trying to build, that, that we learn together, we learn from each other, we support each other. And so that's just a little bit different from, especially if you're working on your own, 
And one of the things we do to really accelerate that process when you're in a community is that anyone can answer your question, but having a dialogue like we're having today, like that's the fast track. Like you can't ask a question of a video or a textbook, right? Like, and that's how you get it faster. It's like, oh, I don't understand this. Okay, let me answer that for you. Like done. Instead of how long would it have taken you to search out the answer for all the questions, right? So it's faster that way too. Exactly. Like you're saving time by joining like your academy bootcamp or any educational curriculum, because like, if you're trying to do it on your own, then you you grab different things from different courses and it's not uh, consolidated enough for you to, because like some person might teach it one way and then you go to somewhere else, they might teach it a different way. Right. So but you have it in concise and condensed. Exactly. And the vocabulary is consistent. Like that's one thing I noticed, like Googling for things like Google is a huge tool. And one of the things we're learning inside the Joy of Coding Academy is how to effectively Google. Like, what do we type in? how do we understand the answers we get back? Like we actually have to like some, we have to actually learn that, you know, we're not necessarily born that way. And in the beginning, like when you start looking at things, everybody's using different terms, but they all mean the same thing. But as a newcomer, like it can be hard to kind of get your bearings. And when you have that support network where you can just ask a question, be like, oh, is this the same? Or like, how should I be looking at this? Everybody's been through the same process. So we're all kind of like on the same page of how we're thinking about it. And so it just, it really becomes a really fast paced learning environment. In regards to uh, people who are wanting to make a career change and want to do programming, what is the mindset that you want them to come in? Like, have you ever did an interview with a candidate saying this isn't right for you? Like, have you ever had that experience? Oh, such a good question. Well, I do know that anyone can learn to code. So that helps, right? So I know that going in, they don't always recognize that they can learn to code. And really the only thing, there is only one requirement. You don't have to be a math whiz. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be able to work 24 seven, but you do have to be able to show up and practice and do the work. So that's like two hours a day. Can you cut out two hours a day to invest in your dream of becoming a six figure developer? And if you can't, it's not going to work. The other requirement I have, and this one everyone says yes to, but doesn't always happen in practice, is if you go more than an hour without making progress, can you stop and reach out for help? That one I mean, everybody wants to learn how to do it on their own, which is exactly what we're doing. But sometimes I'm robbed of the ability to help my students work faster because they just want to figure it out. And they go like three days or a week and they're just trying, they're trying, they're just spinning their wheels. It's like, no, we're going to work smarter. Reach out. And, and what I do is I never just spoon feed and give the answer. It's all about the process. And so I always look at okay, what's the least I can give them that'll help them move forward. Right. And so it becomes a dialogue. It's always a dialogue. But yeah, those are really the two things like showing up to do the work and making that time and then reaching out for help when you need it and recognizing that you do need it, <laughs> that, that, you're, that you, it could be best. Yeah, I do like your teaching style in regards to give them enough that they can figure it out. Because if you tell them the answer, they're not going to learn, right? Right, exactly. And what I might do in the beginning, the first time I might say the answer, but if I see a similar question again, I'm going to back up and I'm not going to go all the way there because that's what I'm like, I'm leading them to be able to solve it on their own. I'm going to ask you a business question about the academy. What was the biggest challenge in starting it up? Was it like getting the initial enrollment, getting people to trust you with your educational curriculum? Like what was the biggest challenge at the beginning of uh, Joy of joy of Coding? Yeah, I don't think I had challenges with people trusting the curriculum because it's tried and true. I've been doing it for 10 years. Like, like I know I, I have the results already. Like I, I know it. But I think for me as a professor, I, I knew how to teach it. I knew how to work with students. But I'd never sold to students. I'd never had to find my own students. And so that's a combination both of understanding how to position and make the case for what I offer and, and, and show that this is a viable path for them, 
I might be the best path. And also like getting out there and not hiding. <laughs> so I, I, I think I had hidden in academia a little bit for, for quite a long time. It's a real easy place to hide and kind of disappear. And so just being out there, being visible, sharing my story which I love to do, but I just, I hadn't been doing it. So it was something I had to kind of like change my habit. So I think really just getting the news, the word out there has probably been the biggest challenge. So thank you for giving me this opportunity today. <laughs> <laughs> great. Yeah. It's great to just know and like learn from you in terms of how you were able to like build an educational system that is effective because with COVID, right? Yes. One of the big jokes right now is like Netflix, let's say it's 20 bucks a month and then Harvard's like 50K a year, right? Because mm -hmm. like you're, you're just watching videos because of, of COVID. So you can't go in class for the interaction. Right. Uh, but you were able to like really have an alternative style of education that not only fast tracks their learning, but also gives them an opportunity to land that six-figure developer job without any program experience before. And a lot of exactly. these professionals listening right now, initially, if they initially listened to the episode, they, they probably wouldn't believe it. But from you going through the process that you shared with me today, I, I think they, they'll be more confident if they want to take that path in programming, for sure. Absolutely. And I hope so. And if anybody wants to reach out, you know, I, I have, I, yeah, I have a Facebook group where I post every week, I do little videos about how to learn it, you know, what, what this looks like. And so I'm always talking about it. How do we become a six-figure developer? I interview six-figure developers to kind of hear what it's like to be it, to be there and, and all that awesome stuff. Great. Yeah. And I want to end this podcast with one last question for you. You might sure. have touched upon this already, but... So my podcast deals with overcoming career challenges yeah. uh, to help professionals get to the next level. So I know like, one of your big challenges was like really dissecting programming over computer science. But mm -hmm. if there was another career challenge or obstacle that you faced in your career, what was it and what steps did you take to overcome it? Oh, such a good one. So I think for me, mostly work-life balance and learning how to, to, stay, to say no at work, right? Not necessarily like, because as a professor, the joke is you can pick whatever 80 hours you want to work, right? And so, but I, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. And so figuring out how to fit my work into the time I have available so that I can make, I have four children, right? You know, make that time for them and have that space so I can be the mom I want to be, but also the professor or the career woman or the CEO and founder that I want to be and really defining my time. So I think for me was setting boundaries at work specifically, because I, I love work, I get such a high from it. Like I really enjoy, you know, working with people and students are amazing. Like I just, you know, I love doing it, but setting those boundaries for myself. And what I've used is a technique called time blocking, where I try and just say, okay, this time to this time, this is when my work happens. And this time to this time is off limits, you know, three to 5pm is kid time or doctor's appointments or sports, whatever it needs to be. And then like seven to 10 is just hangout time. And so trying to follow, I don't always well, observe it, but I do my best to try and to try and find fine tune that that schedule that way. Again, I really appreciate you taking the time today to share your programming journey and then the academy that you've uh, built over the years. So yeah, so again, you said you talk, you have a Facebook group that people can join. So why don't you just give us uh, all the contact information in terms of like learning more about your joy of coding academy or even like reaching out to you personally to see uh, how you can help them move to a career in programming. Yeah, absolutely. So facebook.com slash group slash joy dot of dot coding. And I'm sure we can include the link for anybody that wants it. I have printables of the seven basics we talked about. I have a little video about it. And I'm all, we're always talking about how do we become six figure developers inside there. And, and once you're in the group, you can reach out to me personally. Like if you have a question, you, you know, you're absolutely welcome to, to ask questions and, and get involved. And I wish everyone the best of luck in, in potentially career changes because coding jobs are awesome. Many of them are remote, although it is easier to get the local jobs, but some of the local jobs are 
remote, you know, with COVID, like they're not going back into work. So, so usually there's, there's some nice hybrid options there and they're very nice salaries. So I wish everybody luck on, on their career journey. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again, Emily. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again to Dr. Emily Hill for coming on my podcast and sharing her story and providing advice for my audience who are interested in becoming software developers and landing six-figure jobs. She really breaks it down on how with the right coaching, the right foundation, you too could become a software developer even if you have no technical experience. As always, make sure to check out ChanCap this Friday where I provide my own insights based on the main points discussed in this episode. It will be out this coming Friday on all popular podcast platforms, so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. If you're a professional looking to get your career to the next level, then come join my private Facebook group, Career Advice with Chan with a Plan. Inside this group, I post content to take your career to the next level, whether it's job search tips or career advancement advice. I will leave a link in the show notes for you to join. Again, this is Chan with The Plan, the podcast. I'm your host, Max Chan, and I thank you for listening.